Hi, everyone, and welcome to The Legend of Portalcast, a podcast dedicated to Avatar The Last Airbender, Legend of Korra, and all things Avatar. Tonight, we are focusing on the second of those two. We are returning to our discussion on Legend of Korra. And today, we are going to be talking about Episode 7 from Season 1, The Aftermath. Uh, So I'm Colin, the main host, and with me tonight, I have two co-hosts. First up, we have Kevin. Hey, everybody. Yeah, coming in with that sweet, sweet Blue Yeti mic. <laughs> yeah, I apologize to everyone for every other episode I've been on. <laughs> You're still going to get the same terrible humor, just with better sound. Dad jokes coming in in 4K crispness. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Uh, but uh, yeah, uh, it's so sounding so good. But um, And of course, Kristen. Hello. Hey, coming in without a Blue Yeti mic yet. <laughs> <laughs> What you get when you quit your job? <laughs> it's all good. Now we that uh, you know for our listeners, that's our our long term goal. We're going to be building things up, and uh, we've got some exciting things on the horizon to get to share with you guys as well in terms of uh, ways that you could potentially help us on this journey. But that will be coming a little bit farther down the pike this year. But stay tuned. So back into this, we are jumping back into our Legend of Korra discussion. Um, Of course, the last episode we discussed was episode six, And the Winner Is, where um, the pro-bending finale uh, took place. Amon came in, blew up the pro-bending arena stage, and it turned into a whole big mess. And now we are quite literally dealing with the aftermath. Um, So the the first thing I want to kind of address is uh, the intro that starts off this episode um, it's now shifting from the announcer from Pro Bending, who has been our reliable kind of intro narrator uh, throughout the entire season, to now with Tarlock. And it's so interesting because it's him addressing the public. It's kind of this like press conference where he is recapping what has happened, but then also what the plans are for the future moving forward and how they're going to deal with this equalist threat. Um, and really is setting the tone for uh, these next two episodes. Um, so uh, I wanted to read off. Uh, Susan, unfortunately, wasn't able to join us tonight. So she's got some points that we're going to be periodically bringing up and then uh, give you guys a chance to kind of jump in on the discussion for this. Um, but she wanted to know about this kind of new intro, uh, or at least the change here was, she said this was an awesome way to keep that whole early era prohibition feel with the series in this episode. That was probably what I loved most about Korra was that uh, somewhat 1920s feel. Um, so yeah, we when I mean, we've talked about it before when Mike and Brian were uh, you know coming up with Korra, they said it was kind of this like 1920s uh, you know mix of you know American culture and Chinese culture as well, and a bunch of other different ones kind of fused in. But I don't know some uh, initial thoughts on kind of that change up of the recap. I think that it. I, I didn't think of it so much from the 1920s perspective, although that is obviously there. Um, I thought of it more as like it felt like a change in tone of the season mm. because we had had that, you know, upbeat narrator, you know, coming in and giving us the recaps. And now suddenly we have like a darker, more serious Tarlock, you know, coming out with his his very strong opposition to the Equalists. And it it 
for me, when I first watched it, it definitely felt like it was hearkening a very strong change in how the remaining season was going to go as far as the tone and what was going to be happening. And it definitely felt compared to the original Avatar series, it was going to hit it off going darker a lot sooner. Oh, yeah. I mean, we had Avatar Roku as kind of that recap, you know, it almost felt very like mythic and very like it just very much in the tone of that series. But, you know, yeah, of course, the kind of newsreel type of thing uh, with Korra is a much different tone. Uh, But Kevin, your thoughts? Yeah, I I have to echo what Chris was saying. It's kind of funny. I mean, the last thing we remember the uh, announcer saying was that he was peeing his pants. (laughs) (laughs) And then as she said, it now is getting to this darker tone of like, it's like, oh boy, it's like Tarlac not only has power in uh, in the city, but now he has power over the audience, which is really cool to me. I, I like that they kind of played with that, mm. with uh, who's introducing us to everything that happened. Because before it was almost like a newsreel recap of how Korra was ultimately, I'm sure, successful in something. Like you could almost vision it that way. And now this is almost like Tarlac took over the narrative, mm. which is very fitting for the episode that comes up. Yes. Absolutely. That's a great point. Um, So, of course, uh, one of the things before we jump into kind of the beats of this episode was that, you know, now the situation that they are in now is something that is very unique now to the world of Avatar. Um, So this idea of dealing with the repercussions of Amon's attack and what this means and what does it look like in a modern city. I mean, you could equate what he did coming in, disrupting and like setting off explosive charges, you know, to a terrorist attack and to kind of put it very simply. But I mean, the thing is, is that he completely hijacked something that was a huge part of the, you know, just public entertainment and part of the, you know, entertainment sphere of Republic City and took something where maybe politics or things like that maybe were separated before, but now it's, you know, he f- really kind of brought them all kind of clashing together. Um, so Susan's point on this uh, was that she said, I think this is always something to keep in mind about those that have are often so comfortable that they forget what it is to be without. For example, non-benders had never known something such as bending. And if you look at the economy, there is a variety of jobs specific to benders. It probably makes uh, for economic hardships in some instances for those without unless born into the right family. So this idea of Amon, you know, really, again, fueling that insecurity that a lot of these people uh, who aren't benders are feeling right now in the city. And, you know, taking that again for some people. And for the benders who have come into, you know, the pro bending scene, they're enjoying it. Maybe they're not feeling oppressed. Maybe they're not really thinking about this, these equalist rallies. They see them, you know, some of these guys on the street kind of talking about this and they kind of are able to look past that. And what Amon did with this is suddenly say, no, you need to pay attention and we deserve your attention. So, yeah, we're, what were some of uh, your guys' thoughts uh, kind of on this transition point now? I have to say it's, it just opens up such an interesting uh, storyline of, I mean, initially in the first uh, show of Aang, I mean, we had Sokka. He was the only really major character that we saw for most of the series that didn't have a weapon. 
Um, but now this isn't just about fighting. This is also about living. And when you start thinking about the, like Susan was saying with certain jobs, when you look at, I'm sure it's like, if you had this ability to fire bend, Oh, this is fantastic. Imagine all the things that you can do now. It's like, you can just start fires. Every, like you can start boilers. You can do all these things in a modern city. Earthbenders can just create things out of nothing. Um, and then there's other people that have to struggle to get by to do it. And now the people that have been struggling all this time are starting to be heard. And I, I have to say, and then Amon's attack, as we said, the repercussions of, I think I had said it on the last episode, which is now seeing what happens when all these people that didn't have a voice all of a sudden have a voice and they have an enemy, that, a very directed enemy they can go for. Mm. And it's all other benders. Yeah, and the the point I want to bring up too is that so the most recent uh, Avatar comic that came out was uh, Part Two Imbalance, which we're going to be doing uh, some episodes on and doing a deep dive into those. But just to bring that up because I think it's very pertinent to this is that when Ang and the gang, I mean, this is only a few years after the events of Avatar: The Last Airbender. There are tensions between benders and non-benders during that time. This is something that has been bubbling for over 65 years. And to think about That's that. That's a good point. And just like how much this has been this like push and pull between them and like the tensions and how, you know, Aang and like, you know, the Republic City has had to kind of keep the peace in that sense. And, you know, now we are brought to this point. Um, but Kristen, what were some of your thoughts? I definitely like what I really enjoyed about the series is it really did kind of bring that whole bender non-bender thing to life because I mean we did see hints of it in the original series and even just vents from Sokka as well saying how useless he felt at one point in the series because he was just the boomerang guy um, you know that really is very telling the fact that while the bender culture might not necessarily come out and say that non-benders are are inferior and that they're superior that doesn't necessarily mean that people don't feel that way in the face of it and we even see in that in modern society too how um people might feel underprivileged for a lot of reasons people might want to pursue something but they might not have the right attributes to pursue it and when that happens people might mistake that for oppression but in this particular case, it does seem like there is like that undercurrent of oppression, whether it's intentional or not, that there do seem to be more opportunities for the benders, which in a way makes sense. I mean, from a practical standpoint, they do have more abilities. So why wouldn't you utilize that? But at the same time, if you don't balance your economy by making sure that the non-benders have just as many opportunities and the ability to move like up um, economically, then people are going to feel oppressed by that, by not being given the same opportunities. Yeah. So, you know, and every 1980s and 1990s, like super soldier and superhuman movie, like kind of warned us about this. Even <laughs> things like the Incredibles movies warned us about how people feel when they feel like others have such a severe advantage. They feel like if there's a very specific group who's overpowered and might be dangerous or might be causing more harm than good, then the masses will come together and try to, you know, control that or simply lock it away. 
And, you know, we see that in lots of movies and it plays out differently in a lot of different ways. But usually revolution is pretty common where the oppressed, the group that feels oppressed or is oppressed comes back and tries to then oppress the group they feel like was oppressing them or that was actually oppressing them. So, I mean, this is a completely natural order of things to the human mind as far as how things go. I mean, the French revolution told us lots about how people feel about the upper class. (laughs) Madame la guillotine. (laughs) Yeah. No, No. you're, I I completely agree with Kristen there. I think that was, that's exactly what I find so fascinating about this, this season, or I should say this. Well, yeah, this, this whole book. Yeah. Um, and a good question. I don't know, Colin, is this addressed in balance? Do they mention like what kind of the breakdown is in terms of percentage of benders and non-benders? Because the original show kind of implies that it's not an uncommon thing. In fact, it seemed more uncommon to find people that weren't benders or yeah. they just maybe didn't show if they were or weren't benders. So it, it doesn't specifically say. I mean, it's kind of... Uh, it, it, it. I think a lot of it is more of there are... And what's interesting is that in imbalance, it's actually, it's actually switched. Is that like the the benders feel oppressed from the non-benders because it's now an age of technology um, where, you right, know, more I won't let you give like, too much. But. Yeah. So, but like I said, <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll definitely dive into that. But I think the point that you guys brought up is, 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 you know, it's hits the nail on the head that, you know, revolution is inevitable in these types of situations. And what's really interesting is that in the case of avatar is that it, it kind of almost feels uh, more akin to, like what you would see in like X-Men where you have like, you have Mm -hmm. a certain type of group of individuals who are what we associate as normal humans. And then you have the mutants who have these abilities who have like, of course there are those who are doing things for good, but the ones who are doing things for bad can do some real damage. And that is definitely the kind of case that they were seeing. So, we, you know, we get into this episode and they, uh, B- Bolin and Mako are packing up all their stuff at the arena. They can't live there anymore. And uh, Korra is excitedly telling them that like, hey, Tenzin said you can live in Air Temple Island. But Mako and Bolin are like, well, we already got the invitation from Asami to go live at her mansion, which, you know, it's like from where they lived and the situation that they grew up in, that is a dream come true for them. And uh, it's I, we get this amazing scene with Bolin where Cora, you know, they're telling her, you should come with us. And she's like, no, no, I don't think I should. And Bolin picks up Pabu. He's like, come on, Cora, You know, you, we need to take a little time off after all this mess. <laughs> and uh, the point that Su- priceless. I know the point that uh, Susan brought up was, what's that? You missing narrating a animal companion through their human counterpart? Here, have this <laughs> epic relationship. She says, did I mention I love Bolin? <laughs> and how can you not? <laughs> And I can attest that as somebody who works in this industry, it happens all the time. (laughs) Well, we're always encouraging people not to anthropomorphize animals because we don't want people to think of wildlife as pets because the wildlife pet industry is horrible. Mm. At the same time, like you can't work around animals and see their personalities arise 
and not kind of affix attribute some personalities to them. <laughs> like we fully acknowledge that that's not what they're actually like, but I swear I even give some of them accents that they probably didn't have. I was just about to ask <laughs> and, you if you've given accents to And it's not even species. accurate. Like I gave a Russian accent to an Australian animal. Like not even accurate representations of where the animals are from. Now, granted, they've been raised in the U.S., so who knows? They could have a New Jersey accent, but, you know, it just... It, it happens sometimes, or they get French accents, even though they're an American animal. It just, it's the way it works. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, of course, uh, you know, that scene concludes, and, oh man, do we get a scene here. The metal-bending cops are infiltrating a factory. They're tearing open crates as filled with equalist posters, the electrocuting gloves, and of course, we hear over the announcer that it seems like Cabbage Corp has been in alliance with the Equalists. And we get this moment. Here we are, this wide-out shot of this like beautiful building. Then we see the statue of the cabbage merchant holding a cabbage aloft in complete glory. And then it brings us down to a fancily dressed man looking very, very similar to the cabbage merchant. No, not my cabbage corp. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Pure fan service. Yes. It was so good. (laughs) And uh, Susan said, uh, (laughs) my corporation. (laughs) Like somehow this seems like it had to happen because it's the destiny of the poor cabbage family. (laughs) And by the avatar again, like this this is her and this is the airbenders and like, you know, we're looking at Toss Descendant. We're looking at Aang's Descendant. You know, they're doing this all over again. Yep. And actually, I'm pretty sure. So Aang has knocked over the Cabbage uh, Merchant before. And I'm pretty sure Toph did, too. I'm pretty sure later in the series, she, um, when I think when they go back to, um, uh, oh, where's, I'm forgetting Boomy City right now. Omashu? Omashi, thank you. I think when they go back to Omashi, it might have been that episode, but there's one point where Toph Earth bends and throws uh oh no, you know what? That was the soldiers, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> but still, you know, it, it's just funny that somehow the Avatar, especially as Aang's descendant, Tenzin, is still involved in ruining <laughs> this family's lives all over That's again. It's full cycle. Yeah. So I, I again want to uh, to plug uh, Hello Future Me's amazing video he did on the economics of cabbage and the cabbage merchant in the Avatar world. Uh, he did like this 23 minute long video that is just all about like the the whole arc of the cabbage merchant going from his humble beginnings in avatar to his glorious success into uh, legend of Korra. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what like such a great nod. We've talked about this before. Korra doesn't do like, you know, too like too many, like of these nods back to the old like series in a like overt way. But when they do, I mean, it's, it's one of the most infamous jokes and it is such a great pull. <laughs> So Cora goes to the police station and we get this really like somber scene where she uh, is walking in and she is called over by Tano, the leader of the wolf bats, this antagonist and, you know, who has now had his bending taken away. And we hear him talk to Cora about how he's been to the best healers in the city 
and they can't bring his bending back. And he just looks so downtrodden and so defeated. And it, it is such a poignant moment of moving, of kind of what happens when you have someone who is this antagonist and shifting them to a sympathetic character in this moment. But of course we get a little, a little cheeky bit from him still as he kind of uh, goes around and says, see you around avatar. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't know. uh, um, Thoughts, uh, thoughts on this scene. It's kind of showing what's at stake, which is that, you know, obviously we start feeling some sympathy for non-benders i would hope by this point but obviously not sympathy probably for the ways that amon's going about it but now to see what happens when benders become non-benders i mean for their whole life that's been part of their personality and now he's taken away part of his personality Mm. part of what made him him it's just gone and like i think when someone comes to the realization like you know i kind of think of like a soccer player like tearing their you know acl or something where it's like everything that you've built up for, everything that you've done your whole life, it's just, it's not there anymore. Mm. Yeah. But to be fair, that personality we saw was terrible. That's yeah. true. He was a dick. So <laughs> if it was going to happen to anyone, it was him. <laughs> yeah. And that's kind of the thing is like, I actually didn't feel bad for him. Oh, mm. yeah. Not for him. That's true. I, I just kind of more felt like the emotional, like now that I'm seeing it again, I'm like, oh, oh, that is kind of rough. If you were to think of this happening to all benders. Mm. Well, and and definitely. And, you know, while it was very satisfying to see him humbled, you know, at the same time, I do feel like it it was also redemption for him as well. Like now he has the opportunity to be less of a jerk because he was one of those people that obviously hid behind his power and abused it. So, you know, for as terrible as, as it was for him. You know, it's certainly an opportunity for him to improve, but you do kind of get based on the, the, that very dark feeling of that interaction, like how dire it is, because, you know, people can survive it. It's, it's not the end of the world, you know, just like, you know, like you said, if soccer players tear their ACL, you know, it's not like there is no life past that, but I'm sure in those moments, it is very dark for people. I mean, people who, who suffer all kinds of things, you know, like strokes that cause paralysis or accidents that cause all kinds of, uh, permanent damage and pain you know people find a way to survive that but it does you know nobody goes through that and doesn't first experience that trauma and so that is basically what all these people are going through who are losing their bending is that obvious trauma and you know everybody handles trauma differently some people can't and you know while it obviously isn't discussed i am curious how many people initially because it was a while before cora figured out how to bring back the bending you know, how many people actually survived those initial periods mentally and mm. didn't do something harmful to themselves? Because, you know, for somebody like Tano, I could see that as a complete possibility as, you know, somebody who was very attached to that as his uh, status symbol and his power suddenly being stripped of that. You know, did he actually live through the series? Mm. Yeah. I mean, so much of it when it's linked to your identity. That can be like a really, really tough thing to deal with. And it is a complete shift, especially, you know, if the people, I mean, are the friends that he had around him going to keep hanging out with him? Uh, You know, because he's not this powerful bender, is he going to be able to have access to the restaurants, the other things that he did before? Like so much of that is going to change for him and what that does to someone. 
Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to The Legend of PortalCast. Um, just a quick note here in the middle break. Uh, again, sorry for the delay with this. Um, my wife and I are actually going through the process of selling and finding a house. It's been a crazy experience and has taken up way more time than I thought it has. So I really appreciate you guys and your patience with everything, but I think we're over a pretty major hurdle, so that's exciting. Um, but anyway, thank you so much for the support of the podcast. Um, we're so excited to be talking about Legend of Korra again, and we are going to be back next week with discussion on episode eight from season one. Uh, and then following that, we are going to be discussing Imbalance. Uh, so stay tuned for that because we're really excited to dive into some contemporary Avatar content and what's been coming out recently. And one more last quick note, um, we are going to be including uh, some exciting content uh, from our sister podcast, Beyond Bending. Um, we're going to be adding in a whole new segment uh, that we're really excited to bring Marilyn on for. And uh, if you haven't checked them out yet, uh, they just did a review of The Great Divide. And they kind of convinced me that it wasn't as horrible of an episode as I thought it was. Um, so be sure to check them out, uh, Beyond Bending Podcast. Uh, they are our sister podcast and have been so supportive of us. Uh, but hope you guys enjoy the rest of the episode. Thanks so much. Bye. So as we get into uh, this next scene, uh, we are at Asami's mansion. Uh, Susan wanted to say, enter my literal example of being well-off and non-bender. <laughs> um, and we get this great scene by the pool. Um, you know, they're all having fun. Bolin is just loving this life of luxury. He is relishing in having someone who can pat him dry with a towel. And not to forget Master Pabu, of course. <laughs> Um, and, but then, you know, we have this great moment where, you know, Asami is just like, well, I was thinking we could do something later. And Korra's just like, oh, what? Like a makeover? <laughs> <laughs> and then Asami's like, no, I think I had something a little more exciting in mind. And here we get the scene at the racetrack. And this is such a great, uh, character moment for Asami. Um, because, you know, for the most part, we haven't really seen a lot about her. Um, you know, we kind of, of course, it, the love interest of Mako and, you know, just came in, uh, you know, hit him by accident. It just seemed like this, like it's a textbook meet cute and it's this whole moment. But then, you know, we're, we're building up these perceptions of her and clearly through the lens of Cora, who thinks that she's kind of just prissy <laughs> and, you know, how that is completely turned on its head. When Asami offers to, you know, have Korra ride along with her in this race car. And she is damn good at driving. And, I mean, talk about putting Korra in a place where she is, you know, scared and uncomfortable. Is really interesting for someone who is, like, so bold and so brave. And really showing us how Asami is way more than kind of meets the eye. Uh, so I don't know, just thoughts on kind of uh, like these these few scenes and uh, what we got with uh, this growth in Asami's character. I will say I had super mixed feelings about Asami in the beginning. And, mm. you know, you like you mentioned, we had that very obvious Korra bias in that moment. Um, but I felt like she certainly had 
this feeling of, I really want to be part of this group. And in my mind, I'm sitting here like, okay, she's an equalist, like trying to like infiltrate team avatar and get in and be friends and buddy, buddy with everybody because she wasn't jealous. She didn't try to compete with Cora. Um, she didn't see her as a threat, which is a really common behavior for females um, when hanging out with other guys, especially since Cora at this point hadn't really shown a lot of interest in Bolin. Um, so she wasn't like taken and out of the picture. She was very much single and available and she's the avatar. Um, so Asami cozying up very quickly to Mako and Bolin and then trying very intentionally, it seems to make friends with Cora seems suspicious. Mm. Like they were, they were throwing that carrot out there and I was biting. <laughs> like I was like, okay, she's obviously like an equalist spy infiltrating everything. She's too cool. She can't be pretty. She can't have a great personality and be this awesome. Like there's gotta be a, a chink in her armor and it's that she's an equal. Yeah. Yeah. I ate those words later, but you know, in my first impressions were she's just trying too hard yeah. for somebody so privileged. It's, yeah. I felt like it was obvious. Yeah. I remember when we were initially uh, doing the, our season review of Cora, like we all, as, as the episodes were coming out, we were like, I don't know. I don't trust Asami. Like Asami's gonna, Asami's gonna like turn evil or something. Like she has all the like motivations and reasons to and everything. And we, you know, even, even farther, farther along, we, we still were very uncertain about Asami's role and how, you know, what side she was truly going to take. And if she was just playing both sides, um, but Kevin, some of your thoughts? Well, as we've seen so far in the series, and we will see several times in these couple of episodes, almost nobody is who you think they are. Mm. And I think the more I think of it, I love that this plays like a almost like a, the movie The Sting, um, where there's just a bunch of people where there's a lot of misdirection. Who's who? Who's actually this person? Oh, that person wasn't that person. What's going on here? And mm. Asami's one of the the next people to happen were you're right. It's like initially your thought of her is like, Oh, just some rich girl. Okay. Um, but turns out there's a lot more to her. Yeah. Which I thought was really cool. Cause it's like, you know, I like that they develop characters like this. Oh yeah. That's uh, Mike and Brian specialty. Yep. <laughs> so of, of course it gets to the scene where they head back inside and, uh, Cora overhears, um, Asami's father, Hiroshi, uh, Sato, uh, on the phone and saying that, you know, now that Cabbage Corp is down, it gives us a chance to strike. And Cora's intuition is that, you know, he is up to no good. Um, and it's interesting because we get this next scene where Cora is talking to Tenzin and Lin. And Lin brings up this point where she's like, well, he does have a motive. And suddenly we get a glimpse into more of not only his backstory, but with Asami as well, that, you know, the Agni Kai gang came in and they went to steal from them and they killed Asami's mother. And the point that Susan brought up here was uh, she said, every good villain slash vigilante needs a Batman-esque story. No, hear me out. We have Spider-Man, Uncle Ben, Iron Man, parents, Elsa, parents, Ariel, mother. Wait, am I sensing a trend of it not being good to be a parent in these types of stories? <laughs> <laughs> and she says, all kidding aside, it did make me originally question Amon as potentially Sato or at least working with him. Um, because, you know, again, it's this idea that like 
you know, if he's got the motives and, uh, you know, again, we just found out Asami wasn't really who we thought she was. And, you know, this is definitely kind of adding to that. Um, but of course, when these accusations are brought forth, you know, Asami is feeling incredibly defensive um, and, you know, really, you know, just taking these accusations very personally as these attacks towards her and her family. And it's interesting to kind of see, you know, that perspective of her, too, and just how quickly, like, that emotional response comes up from those types of accusations. Um, so, you know, I, I want to get just uh, some quick thoughts from you guys on kind of that backstory and uh, Asami's reactions uh, to the accusations. I think Susan's point was very good. I definitely thought Sato had to be high on that list once you see this. But again, it's one of those things like Mike and Brian don't just give you everything. So like having now seen the show through, you're like, oh, OK, I see why it was the way it was. But, you know, when you're first watching through the show, it's like that seems like a very plausible explanation backstory where all right the you know the wife is dead the it's at the end of the you know, these benders and all of a sudden you have to start being like oh okay it's like is it going to be like a cat and mouse game with him or yeah that at least would, that was my first impression of was that he was pretty high up on that list mm, yeah well i i mean in getting into the whole cat and mouse thing i mean that that is that is what makes kind of that next scene so crazy that you know as they're investigating things and the man gives the note to Korra informing informing them that Hiroshi has a secret factory underneath. I mean, the the fact that we went from this discussion between Tenzin, Lin, and Korra about, uh, you know, Hiroshi's background and, you know, potentially the motive and everything. And then suddenly within like three minutes later... They're like, okay, we have the information. Let's go. Now it's time to roll. Like there, there was no cat and mouse really between this. It was, it like they wasted no time getting into this, which I think it is the telltale tribute of like Legend of Korra. I mean, it does not waste time. Whereas other shows or even Avatar would kind of draw that out a little bit. This is, it's just like, nope, we got the information. We're moving. This is where we're going. But That's true. Yeah, but Kristen, some of your thoughts? Um, well, initially, when, when like you asked earlier, like with Asami and her protectiveness, I mean, I feel like that part was a given. Like, even though I suspected that she was, at the very least, an equalist sympathizer, um, considering her father is the only family she has left, it makes sense that she would be extremely protective of anybody who would, um, you know, possibly threaten his well-being or their family's well-being. Uh, with I mean, because it's a pretty serious accusation, you know, this whole equalist movement is really starting to, you know, take off and it would be extremely dangerous. We just saw Cabbage Corps get shut down. Um, it's not even like the CEO was removed, just the entire industry is gone. Um, so it's it's a pretty big threat to their family. So it, it makes sense her reaction. Like, I will, I, I, even if I hadn't thought that she was an equalist, you know, I would have given that to her. That was just... That was just a given. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty serious how quickly they they jumped on it. And at that point, I did wonder, because um, we've been discussing like some of the privilege of the benders, you know, how 
easily they accepted that, oh, he could be an equal sympathizer simply because his wife's been killed by a bender. Sure, it makes sense, but it does, it, it, it either suggests that this is not something uncommon, um, that there have been enough incidences of benders killing non-benders and non-benders harboring ill will or ill feelings towards benders for it. You know, it's, uh, it's either something common enough that they could accept that so easily or it kind of shows their skewed view of the world, like, oh, well, non-benders are so sensitive about benders that, you know, anything that happens to them because of benders obviously makes them forever hate benders. Like, it's not like they approached him and asked him, like, hey, do you have uh, equal sympathies because of what happened to your wife? That was never a question. They simply accepted it as truth. And um, it, it's 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 interesting. There's a, There's... There's a lot of questions I had, and of course, you can't get a lot of answers from a show that has to tell a story in a very short period of time. Um, but I feel like there's a lot of questions we could ask about both uh, how Sato developed his his feelings towards benders, and also how benders accepted so easily that any crime against non-benders by a bender would instantly cause them to have anti-bender sympathies and feelings i mean it, it does make sense to a certain degree but at the same time you know not everybody reacts the same way to these traumas you know maybe he would instead of hating benders maybe instead he would hate gangs and he would support law enforcement and he would start an anti-gang you know um team tactic t- tactical team to like take out the gangs like there could have been a lot of reactions to his wife being killed it didn't necessarily have to be i hate benders yeah, but I think it's honestly it's the pull of a of an entrepreneur and a capitalist society because suddenly it's just like okay I could invest that into the city and I could do this but it's just like what if I just sold cars to everyone in the city and develop things that way and was able to kind of make that big of a difference of course maybe he did we I mean there's so much again that we don't know. But I think that that is like one of the big things we have to remember about Hiroshi Sato is that, you know, he is this like entrepreneur and a capitalist at his core because so much of, you know, the way that Republic City was transformed was through this technological innovation that mirrors so much of late 19th century, early 20th century with, you know, figures like the Vanderbilts, like Rockefeller, like uh, like the Model T and Henry Ford. That these these individuals they saw a demand and they saw the you know development of technology and they sold it because that was what the people wanted and that was how you know they were able to kind of profit and make the city move forward and of course there there's so much that you again can kind of debate in and out of that but I think that that's something we should definitely keep in mind with him so. Um, one of the notes that, uh, you know, Susan wanted to bring up about this kind of the, the, the man giving the note to Cora and how quickly it moves the plot along. Susan said, I was so happy to see a non-plot uh, blocker, but wondered if this wasn't a trap. It was nice to get ba- uh, get backstory. And perhaps this is what made this so different in terms of audience. We had so many fillers in Avatar, the Great Divide comes to mind, that Cora tried to only include enough to build side characters that ultimately would be integral to the plot. Um, so I, I think that that is definitely like a, a, a great point on that front because again, it's, you know, it's, it's trim storytelling. They are just kind of getting what is most important, who is relevant to Korra 
And they are just moving this thing along according to that because they have a story to tell and they wanted they want to tell it. Um, which leads us to the metal benders returning to the Sato mansion. And we get this great kind of scene where they, you know, burst in through the doors and Asami is, you know, again, frustrated that they're coming in and trying to figure out like what, like you've already looked like, what are you doing here? But we find out that there is, you know, they tell them like, look, there's a, a factory underneath the mansion. And we get this line from Asami. She's like, I grew up here. You think I would like notice, like not notice something like that? And they go back to the factory or the workshop in the back. And we get this great callback to Toph in her earth sense as we see Lynn lift her foot up. The metal on the bottom of her boot slides away and then she stomps on the ground and it brings us into that earth sense vision that became so much of who Toph was as a character we saw from the blind bandit of the black and white with all of the bands of light and kind of expanding through in this kind of echolocation and Lynn comes back out of it and says there's a tunnel and it leads deep into the mountains um Susan's point that she said is I think I just love Lynn Beifong. I'm going to need a minute <laughs> and her <laughs> awesomeness. <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, yeah, just like thoughts on that and kind of like the little callback we got with there to kind of see that lesson uh, in what Toph really developed and how that was passed along to Lynn. That's so cool. I think this is why everybody always wants a sequel when they have a very successful show or movie. It's because you just want to see what else can be developed or continued from that. And that's the cool thing of Avatar. It's, you know, 70 years in advance now. And it's, we could see, we're like, okay, well, in 70 years, like how much could stuff advance? How much could all these techniques that were discovered um, years ago be developed by, you know, people like earthbending, chi blocking, everything, like just seeing how it um, progresses is so cool. And of course, as, as Susan pointed out, Lynn is, is just a bamf. She's <laughs> just so cool. <laughs> Kristen? Yeah, Lynn is more fan service. Like, even though she is a, a pretty pivotal character in some areas, I mean, for the most part, she is service to Toph fans because... It's true. You know, I love Bolin. He's wonderful. But Bolin's not that kind of an earthbender. Like, it's not about <laughs> him necessarily being this big badass. At least not yet. Um, and it's it's so nice to have that because we've seen the metal benders. But we haven't really gotten to see anything beyond just them looking cool. And it's one of those things where, you know, Lynn showing that she has this ability just like her mother did, that it's been passed down. You know, it hopefully opens the door to learning more about how metal bending has impacted uh, technology, essentially, because, I mean... The metal benders are this very elite task force. It's it's made apparent later on that this is not an innate ability. It's not simply something that somebody can have. Um, either you have to be a special type of earthbender or you have to have a certain amount of power to be able to do it. And it does not seem like everybody's able to do it so easily. Um, so it's really interesting. And again, it does show some of that privilege even among benders to have these special abilities. Um, but it's it's so cool because we've seen how it impacts the task force and the police force in the city to have the ability to use these metal wires to very quickly get into places, um, to throw on handcuffs real quick. Just, you know, we see all of the impacts it has. And even though this is a very 1920-esque 
uh, TV series, I would argue that they have some abilities that surpass even our own police force in modern times as far as how quickly and able they are to answer to certain things because they do have this essential sonar. It's no different than uh, police having night vision goggles or infrared goggles. Like mm. it's, it's an obvious benefit that is very advanced. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, of course, they decide to go down into the tunnel. Um, and they tell Mako, Bolin, and Asami that they need to stay behind. Um, as Lin, Tenzin, and Korra and the Metal Benders descend down this like ominous-looking tram that goes deep into the mountain. But of course, as things are ominous, we get a very wonderful, humorous scene as Mako and Bolin are you know, they want to find out what's going on. And we get this just pure brothers moment where, you know, oh, I don't know if you can leave me in here. It's, I might snee, snee. And then he just sneezes out fire. And as the metal vending <laughs> cop falls backward, Bolin trips him up and then just jumps on him and dog piles him. And I mean, it's just, it's something you can tell that they have practiced and they have done countless times <laughs> it really reminded me of the uh the whole uh thor and loki uh get help scene from uh <laughs> from thor ragnarok <laughs> see oh, always always time in avatar for just a quick little break of fun and susan wanted to kind of note for this one she says bros forever seriously i have had some secret hand handshake stuff with my siblings before but this was pretty awesome and further demonstrated <laughs> that no matter what at the core of this all they were best friends and brothers. Um, so, of course, what prompted them to do that was as uh, Lin, Tenzin, the Metal Benders, and Korra make their way into the factory. They see these banners that have Amon's face on them. They see these new inventions kind of lining the side. And then a door drops. And Lin tries to bend it. And it doesn't budge. And again, we had this moment where we had the callback to Lynn having this earth sense, but then almost just poignantly kind of countering that. We hear Hiroshi's voice. That wall is made of pure platinum. Not even your renowned mother could bend a metal so pure. And of course, now they are trapped. And as he tells them that they these suits are also made of platinum and can't be bent. And suddenly we get these Bioshock, Big Daddy looking-esque, like, you know, like hor horror machines. That's that all I've been wanting to say this whole time. Is <laughs> it's a Big Daddy. <laughs> and, you know, it gets into this incredible fight. Um, and I don't know, just uh, kind of some initial thoughts on, you know, this idea of that kind of callback again and how this kind of uh, fight starts off. Mecha suit fight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's, it's really such a fun fight. And especially with all the, you know, we've had so many amazing games and movies and series come out over the years that are, you know, post-world apocalyptic that takes on a steampunk kind of, um, feel to it especially with the limits of electricity um so it's it's really cool seeing this because one i mean first I, my first question was i get that he's rich i get that he's like you know 
Rockefeller rich, but solid platinum everything is pretty extreme. <laughs> like that dude had to. Had I was to, just looking that up. It's like eight hundred thirty bucks an ounce. It's like unless he has his own mine, like literally his own personal mine of platinum that he is digging up and you know shipping this stuff stuff to himself. Like it's it seems so intense and and you know, for him to have this developed at this point, like he had to have been playing this for I a know. long I mean, time. Mm-hmm. Now granted we had some pretty badass tanks in the original series. The firebenders had some pretty impressive tanks. So it's not as if we they were lacking the ingenuity and he is a car designer. So you know I I can kind of give him some props for that because the techno- it's not as if this technology came out of thin air. The mobility and the 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 weaponized mobility has has been around for over seventy years now. Um, so well, I think I, if I, it's I, funny, he has this big door, but he didn't encase the whole secret thing in platinum. So there's a limit to his riches. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. he also, can't make the whole thing platinum. <laughs> but but also, you know, it's it's pretty impressive that. He, you know, it's one of those things where suddenly it's like, this is so much more intense than we thought. We just thought that the chi blockers and the electric gloves were bad. You know, now we're talking like, like actual war style weapons. So this is, this is basically like, we we thought that Amon's attack on the pro bending arena was a declaration of war, but I don't think we understood how much of a war it was until we saw actual war weapons. Mm, and true. it's, it's really intense in that moment, seeing that and knowing that that even existed. And, you know, I also wonder like, cause platinum's never mentioned in the previous series. So I am curious, like from a metallurgy standpoint, um, who made platinum? Because I feel like, you know, it makes total sense that they would have platinum um, be the metal benders' uh, weakness because we can't have benders being so impervious to everything. I mean, there would just there would be no challenge in the series if benders could just do anything mm. um, and not have to worry about consequences. So, you know, it's nice to see them putting limitations on the bending, but at the same time, like who created this metal? Because you feel like it almost had to have been made with intention because unless. That was, I was just thinking, that's Mm -hmm. the cool thing I'm thinking about this is that he had to have tested this, you know, he's a man of science and uh, ingenuity. So he probably over the years, like him or someone else has figured out, oh, platinum can't be, you know, used by earthbenders, which are metal benders, which may have just been a curious thing to metal benders, but to someone with a mind towards spiting metal benders, it's marvelous. Like someone figured it out and he's like, oh, let's. Mm. Or I should say spiting. Or could or I should say spiting. You mm. control. I think that's a better yeah. way to say it. Yeah, more of a way to to thwart uh, metal benders. I think that was what I was looking for. And and does it come from anti-bending sentiments, or did it come from like the government? Because think about I it. Know. I have so city many questions. <laughs> city. So you think that the government would be like, okay, we have to, we can't let the power, you know, we can't let things get out of control the way they did with the the fire nation in the war so we have to find limitations for everybody and so i wonder if there was that's true because otherwise the, let's stop the metal vendors from taking over exactly mm. especially oh, there's since so, so much, much story to play with here. i know there's too <laughs> many questions so i i think you know definitely one of the biggest points and what this truly shows is that how again like how far in advance this was thought because it is it is a glorious trap because he 
built a massive platinum door because he knew that this was going to be the case. And mm-hmm. we, it's revealed that the guy who slipped on the note, that was all through that was all through Hiroshi. And it was all sent over to direct them there. This is something that they have been waiting for. And what a better way to trap the prime players who would cause like a direct opposition to them than to bring them all in and like, you know, have them like they have no way out. And I mean, it is this fight is incredible. It it is is such a great like example of them really flexing the, you know, improved animation, the different styles. I mean, can we just take a second to appreciate Tenzin in this fight and how insane his airbending is as we get to see him pull off some of the most advanced airbending that we have seen to this point. And I mean, it, it's just incredible. And, and I clearly the move where he makes that air wheel around him is very reminiscent of the air scooter that Ang made, but it's like this whole different thing, which my theory is that that was what brought him to, that was the move he had to invent. So in order, in air nomad culture, in order to get your tattoos and to become a master airbender, the last of the 36 tiers that you have to complete is to invent a new airbending move. And I am like convinced in my head canon that it like that move he did there was his own move that he designed. And I mean, it's just, it's such a glorious fight. And you know, there, there is like a push and a pull. We do get to see them fighting back, but at the end of the day, humans have limitations and these machines are powered by an energy supply that is seemingly, you know, uh, limitless <laughs> and has an answer for every type of bending the electrical shock for the metal benders that will wrap them in the cables the flying bola that will like go out and swing and get benders who are flying through the air like tenzin i mean they're they're it is designed with such intention to take down all different types of benders and i think that that is truly kind of the the master stroke of what Hiroshi did. And I mean, what, what an amazing fight. I mean, it's just so great, but you know, you know, because we're, we're starting to kind of run down on time here. I want to get into this very poignant moment that tops off this episode. The, you know, Korra, Tenzin, uh, Lin and the metal benders are taken down, but Mako and Bolin make their way in and they try to get them out, but they are confronted by Hiroshi and Amon's lieutenant. And then Asami steps forward. And Hiroshi is forced to deal with his daughter knowing the truth. And we get this moment where he is making his case. These benders took everything away from us. They took your mother. They are causing so many problems in the world. They have for, like, since the beginning. Join me. And he hands her the glove and she takes it. And we even get this reaction from Mako of just like, no. And we think it's this like dark side moment where Asami is going to flip. But of course, she puts on that glove. I'm sorry, father. She shocks him and incapacitates the lieutenant. And the gang is able to get away. So I want to get your thoughts to kind of wrap up this kind of uh, episode discussion um, on 
this moment of Hiroshi's offer and Asami's betrayal. Man, what an Asami turnaround in this episode. <laughs> right? <laughs> I wasn't convinced. I thought that she had accepted that her father was compromised and that she wanted her infiltration to be <laughs> successful. And I thought she turned on her father because she was just trying to make sure that she still had her in with Tina Avatar. I, the first time I watched it, I was still not convinced. Honestly, even watching it again, was- I think you're right. Like, it's one of those things where, like, there's so many, like, that's what I was saying. Like, no one is what they seem in this show. And there's so many layers within layers that even knowing how the story goes from here on out, you still have to kind of think, I'm like, oh, that could have been a really cool plot point. Oh, that would have been so deep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, definitely. (laughs) A fake double cross? Oh, it'd be be so good. That that would have been intense. But, I mean, to be fair, it's still pretty intense, the fact that, you know, we learn eventually that she, at least as far as everything goes, you know, she never was part of the Equalist. She really did feel betrayed by her father. And so her turn and betrayal of the only family she has left in the world is pretty intense. I mean, we yeah. saw how protected over a she short was amount of time. Yeah, yeah. She had a, she had to size up everything her father just did. And then after that fight had to realize, like we've just been saying, these were war machines. These weren't just for giggles machines. Like, <laughs> yeah, it you know. was no small crime. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, this was, it wasn't like something that could be misconstrued. It was pretty obvious. Yeah. Your dad was a bad dude. Or yeah, and I'm sure yeah. she felt extremely betrayed by him feeling like he couldn't trust her with that. You know, obviously Sato recognized that his daughter wasn't that type of person. You know, even though Asami is pretty badass and defending herself and everything, at the same time, she isn't somebody who seeks conflict. You know, while she could definitely be angry and she can hold her own, she's not a conflict-seeking person quite the way Korra is. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, knowing that about her personality, we have to assume that Sato thought that she, you know wasn't ready for that that she it might have taken some time maybe he was waiting to see what her reactions were going to be to the continually continuing equalist propaganda and stuff but um you know he he said he was pretty disappointed about her choice to shack up with an air, with a firebender oh, of all people essentially like seeing you I'm with sure that it, firebender street rat oh exactly <laughs> you know it's they they both obviously had like a lot of moments with each other that were unsaid leading up to that moment that that you know caused this to happen but it was a pretty intense decision to make on the spot because not only does she lose her only family member but now she's jeopardized her privilege too as we see later Mm. so Mm -hmm. you know she she sacrificed a lot in that moment so looking back on it if i'd have really thought it out maybe i could have been a little bit more sympathetic to her but you know (laughs) it's even re-watching it, I still kind of acknowledge that it was it would have been too easy for Mike and Brian to have made her like a double agent of some kind. Mm, yeah. So the last thing that we see is uh, the team able to f- uh, get away and escape on the airship. And uh, Lynn telling Tenzin that, you know, she failed. She Her metal benders have been captured. And this great line where she says... I'm going to send in my I'm going to turn in my resignation because I'm going to get my metal benders back the only way that I can outside the law. Oh, my gosh. Like the delivery and the intensity. It is such a great moment. And again, it is just it it is. It's also this incredible turning point for Lynn as a character 
because the journey that she takes as a character over the course of this series is phenomenal. And this is a huge moment because so much of her life has been living in her mother's shadow and being the metal bending police chief. And that is what she is dedicated to. And now she has seen over multiple instances that the way to do it by the books is failing her. And she needs to be able to go outside the law. And it's it's just such a great way to kind of end this episode out. Um, so, again... Such a great 80s action movie thing to do. Yes. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it just... really is. Like, how many of those did we see where somebody's, like, you know, turns outlaw, essentially? Like, I was just trying to think of one, and I'm like, why am I even trying? Like, there's just... <laughs> just any action movie in the 80s. Demolition Man. Yes. yes. Oh, very oh he doesn't know how to use seashells. Oh, my God. Demolition Woman. All right. That is the crossover that we need. That is That is the crossover that we need oh my gosh all right so that 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 wraps up our discussion for episode seven the aftermath um uh, thank you all so much again for listening uh we will be back with uh episode eight uh next week and uh we're gonna be kind of continuing this discussion along uh so excited to be jumping back into Cora with this and uh thank you so much again to everyone who's been listening in commenting and reviewing we greatly appreciate it. Uh, Kevin, Kristen, thank you so much for joining me tonight and all of the insights that you shared. Yay, new team avatar. <laughs> these aren't for giggles machines. These are for, these are for war machines. <laughs> all right, like folks. I said, better microphones, same terrible jokes. <laughs> uh, well, thanks, folks. Remember, you can find us on social media at Legend of Portalcast on Instagram and Facebook, Portalcast Pod on Twitter. And on our website at legendofportalcast.com. Thank you all so much for your continued support. And until next time, let us leave.